have lost the way. Greed has poisoned men's souls. It's barricaded the world with hate. You stepped us into misery and bloodshed. We have developed speed, but we have shut ourselves in. Machinery that gives abundance has left us in want. Our knowledge has made us cynical. Our cleverness hard and unkind. We think too much and feel too little. More than machinery, we need humanity. More than cleverness, we need kindness and gentleness. Without these qualities, life will be violent. And all will be lost. Welcome to Inspired Edinburgh, the home of powerful conversations. I'm Elliot Reeves and my guest today is Constantine Kisson. Constantine is a multi-award winning comedian, podcaster, writer and social commentator. You made international headlines in 2018 by refusing to sign a behavioural agreement form for a London University gig which prohibited jokes about religion, transphobia, sexism, classism, ageism, ableism, as well as seven other isms and insisted that all humour must be respectful and kind. A proud Russian Brit, you are the current Jewish comedian of the year and have played at some of the UK's biggest comedy clubs, most recently performing your fantastic debut show Orwell That Ends Well at the Edinburgh Fringe. You're also the creator and co-host of Trigonometry, an online video interview show creating honest conversations with fascinating people. To date, you've produced over 60 interviews with economists, political experts, journalists and social media personalities with a diverse array of social and political attitudes. Described as an objective voice from the centre of the political spectrum, you've appeared on the likes of BBC Breakfast, Good Morning Britain and Tucker Carlson Tonight. You're a regular contributor to BBC, ITV, BBC Radio 5 Live and Love Sport, and you've written for publications including The Telegraph, The Spectator, Quillette, Daily Mail and Spiked. You're also a regular host at Killconomics, the best economics and comedy festival in the world. Constantine, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thanks, I enjoyed that tremendously. <laughs> a list of all my accolades today was brilliant. Absolutely. It's great to be on the set. I feel like I'm in the Matrix. You're about to offer me the red pill uh, <laughs> well, with, these, with these plush chairs and everything else. So it's good to be here. Yeah, I thought a nice bourgeois uh, setting would be apt for this. So, yeah, uh, fantastic. What a, what a place to be. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. It absolutely is. Um, I attended your show last night. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I'm not particularly easily offended so that might be why. <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting. I don't actually think of myself as a particularly offensive comedian. Yeah. Uh, and one of the reviews I've had was actually someone who came and gave me, uh, he gave me a three-star review, but it wasn't particularly praising me mm. because it wasn't offensive enough. So this is always the position you find yourself. Other comedians who've, who've done shows about free speech, or something, they've always found themselves in this position where you're either too offensive mm -hmm. In which case they go, oh, she said all these offensive things, or they come expecting you to be offensive, and then you're not offensive enough. Yeah. And so with those people, you can't really win. But also, as we were talking about before we started, I've had some very positive reviews as well. Yes. So I, I guess in the modern world, everything is kind of becoming about 
being everything has to be marmite now mm -hmm. the very very few products of people who will cater to uh, uh, everyone it's very much about mass customization you yeah, know yeah. it's you know you want to hit this audience and someone else wants to hit that audience and it's all these little niches mm -hmm. and so the fact that people are having a go at you and other people are really liking you i guess is a good thing yeah i think so i think it's always that thing that if you try and target everyone you ultimately hit no one mm. so you know that's very much uh, so I, so i hear yeah <laughs> so i mean in the beginning if we can kind of go back to your early life and um, where you grew up and, and generally what that was like I grew up in the Soviet Union in different parts of it. So I was born in Moscow. I lived there for four years. Uh, my parents were very poor students. They lived in a room probably, well, the, for the viewers, you won't be able to see, but it was a room the size of most of your bathrooms. Oh, right, okay. So they tell me that when they, they had me when my dad was 20 and my mom, when I was born, she'd, she'd been 18 for four days. So they were right, very young. Yeah, very young. Um, and they would have parties in this tiny room and I would sleep in the party behind a little curtain and apparently i was able to sleep just mm. like that which <laughs> i can't anymore believe me um, and uh, after four years we moved to tashkent which is the capital of uzbekistan okay which was part of the soviet union at the time mm -hmm. so i lived in central asia for four years then we moved back to moscow eventually when i was about 11 or 12 my parents sent me to boarding school here in england um, I oh, was well, not here in the oh, like, oh Jesus, careful. what have I done? <laughs> here, here in the UK. Thank you. Uh, I apologize. Uh, that's it. My career is over. Um, here in the UK. Uh, and I'm actually very fond of Scotland because after I went to school in England, I came to Edinburgh University. I studied here yeah, I for that. a couple yeah. of years. Well, what did you study? I studied economics and politics. Figures. Uh, and as you know from having seen my show, uh, my family trajectory was from going from being very poor to being wealthy mm -hmm. to being very poor again. Mm -hmm. And the moment when my father lost all his money happened as I was in my second year of Edinburgh University. And I never got to finish that course because I, I didn't have the money to keep going. Uh, so I started my own translation business because that was like the only skills that I had a basic understanding of politics and economics and news and stuff like that mm -hmm. and the ability to speak two languages fluently. Okay. And I made, you know, I made a, a very good business out of it. I ended up teaching other people how to do translation, uh, how to do the business side of translation, how to be your own business person, etc. Wow. Uh, and then four years ago, I, I kind of felt like it was a game that I'd completed. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I don't know yeah, if you're a gamer, yeah, yeah. but you know, I went through all the levels and there was nowhere else to go. Um, hmm. I was actually chatting to a friend of mine after the show yesterday who, who came over from America to, to see the show. And he was saying, he's a fellow translator, and he was saying, I was quite amazed when you started comedy because it was like you'd got to the very top of your profession and then just went, that's it, I'm throwing all this away and starting something else. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what I did. Yeah. Uh, but for me, it's, it's, I've always been very interested in being bad at things because that's the only time you can really grow. If you get to a point where you're really good at something, you're not growing anymore. Uh, you, you've reached the pinnacle. There's very little. So as soon as I kind of achieve what I think is a, is a very high level in something, yeah. I tend to get bored with it and I want to move on to something else that will be difficult and a challenge. How, how do you determine what sort of mastery is in that sense? Well, you know, you know when you know, right? I mean, uh, you know, in terms of my translation career, I was selling out workshops to other translators on how to do certain things, how to do business skills, how to do marketing, how to 
communicate with your clients more effectively. Um, you know, I, I was one of the most in-demand translators in my language. Jeez, okay. Uh, uh, so I was, you know, I was working with the, you know, I was translating some high-level computer games and also working for the U.S. Department of Defense and kind of and some of the world's biggest bankers and legal firms. Mm -hmm. So I got to a point where I was pretty comfortable that I, I was. I, I, I was pretty successful in that. And was your, so your passion for it was just sort of fading? Oh, it faded completely. Yeah. I got incredibly okay. bored of it. Yeah. Okay. So why comedy? Yeah, I, I genuinely don't know. I mean, you, you're drawn <laughs> to what you're drawn to, right? You don't really always know uh, why it is that you're drawn to it. I guess, um, I think probably if you'd met me maybe 10, 15 years ago, I actually would have been someone who would have been quite afraid to go on stage, uh, quite scared of being in front of people. Um, and p partly my journey to teaching workshops as, for other translators was about me overcoming that, uh, overcoming a very natural fear of public speaking that pretty much everybody has. Mm -hmm. And I've read a lot of interesting research on why that is, why do we fear, and, and I think Desmond Morris, who is a, a I'm not sure if he's an evolutionary psychologist, but he's certainly a sociologist. What one of the things he talks about is that people are afraid of being in public because he, in terms of our early development as humans, uh, in, in those days living in small tribes, a situation where a large group of your peers were staring at you silently was very unlikely to be a good one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that fear is actually quite natural, and most people have it. Uh, but, but like I said, I've always been interested in overcoming things uh, and uh, kind of transcending those limitations and challenges. So for me, I guess comedy is ultimately about facing down that fear m more than anything. Because the thing that a lot of the reason that a lot of people will come up to you after a show and say, well, that's so brave what you do when, it, I mean, it, it isn't compared to someone going to war or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. or a firefighter mm -hmm. running into a burning building, uh, is that the feedback is immediate. Mm -hmm. You can put out this video and people can think that I'm the worst guest ever, but I won't know about that until the show's happened, right? But with comedy, it's right there and there's nowhere to run. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I think that's why. And so it's like, it's like a rodeo, you're riding this bull that's, this very powerful beast, a huge audience in front of you, uh, and you could fall off at any moment. And I guess that's what makes it exciting. Mm -hmm. hmm. <laughs> but you, you have you've become very good at it. You know, I mean, having having watched your show last night, I wouldn't have thought you were someone that was, you know, sort of newer to comedy, if you like. No, I'm very new to comedy. I've been going about three and a half years. Yeah, it really takes about you know by most people accounts about seven to ten years to to become the comedian that you would kind of watch yourself and respect. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I think it's, it's very kind of you to say, and I hope that I'm a comedian that uh, is enjoyable for people to watch already, uh, but I've got a lot of growing to do, and I'm aware of that. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you really came to prominence, I suppose, when you went viral. Mm. Um, and I sort of mentioned that in the, in the bio, and people who are familiar with you will probably know what, what that's about. I mean, you refused to do a university gig mm 
because of the clauses mm. that were uh, that they wanted to impose on you. So tell me a bit about that, and then the sort of chain reaction of things to becoming international headlines. Yeah, <laughs> it was pretty crazy. I, I, I was performing at uh, Top Secret, which is one of the best comedy clubs in London. And there were some students in, and I think they actually invited everybody who was on the bill that night, so about five or six people. Uh, and this guy came up to me outside the gig and said, I loved your, your set. Uh, would you be willing, essentially what they were asking for is for me to donate my time to raise money for charity, okay. right? So they were asking for my time for free, yeah. right? Which I thought was quite an interesting aspect that never really got acknowledged. Um, <laughs> and uh, they sent me a behavioral agreement contract which had all those clauses that you, you read out before. Uh, and I, at this point, was already becoming aware of a creeping culture in our society of hypersensitivity, mm -hmm. particularly on campuses, but more broadly. And I, as you know, I talk about it in my show. There is a, a creeping authoritarianism when it comes to wrong think and having the wrong opinions. Mm -hmm. And there's an increasing drive to restrict the kind of things that people talk about it and talk about honestly. Mm -hmm. uh, so to me, this contract that they sent me wasn't an isolated incident. It was part of a broader picture. Of a, of a shift in society in a direction which I think is very damaging, dangerous, and unhealthy. So I turned it down. I tweeted about, I tweeted about it to like, well, at the time I probably had like a thousand followers or something. So really not very significant following. But because of the YouTube show that I host with Francis Foster, we, a lot of the people who follow me and follow our show are people who, who are into that site, who are very aware and awake to what is happening yeah. and concerned about it. And so it became, I basically literally, I went to bed and overnight it, it had been, you know, it was covered by a journalist in America first and then it became, uh, it was literally in every paper in the country. Eventually I did Piers Morgan. I mean, it was a huge story, Tucker Carlson as well yeah, that's uh, right. in, yeah. on Fox News. So <laughs> it just blew up uh, overnight. Uh, the, the interesting thing for me as well with that is that a lot of people assumed that I somehow created this publicity, that I wrote to newspapers and yeah, whatever yeah. and saying, look, <laughs> as if that's how the media works. I mean, look, I'm a comedian. I'm obviously desperate for attention. I want to sell tickets to my show. I want people to come and see what I have to say. Mm -hmm. If I could create viral stories, there would be a viral story about me every day. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it, it's kind of mental that people think that. Is actually yeah. something that happened completely organically. I never sent it to anyone. No one ever sent it to anyone on my behalf. And I think that's why, uh, that's what a lot of people don't understand about the story, that there's a reason that it went viral and it has nothing to do with comedy, actually, this story. The reason it went viral is that many, many ordinary people now feel like they're not sure what is safe for them to say. And... I mean, look at, you can look at any area of our lives now, you know, having a traditional view of what a man and a woman is, is now controversial. The idea that there are only two genders mm -hmm. is now controversial. These are beliefs that whether you and I may, may have a more nuanced view on it, mm -hmm. I don't know. But these are views that the vast majority of people in this country would, would hold. Mm -hmm. If you ask an ordinary person who's not on Twitter how many genders there are, they would say there are two genders, mm -hmm. right? Now, as I say, that may be right. That may be 
insufficiently you know, aware of nuances or whatever. But the fact that we now have a society where having a mainstream opinion is dangerous, uh-huh. that saying what you think is dangerous uh, for your career, for your reputation, for your friendships, for your social life, etc. That is a problem. And that's why that story went viral. It went viral because ordinary people saw themselves in the story. Yes. Yeah. How were you specifically perceived on the back of that? Uh, well, I think in terms of the widespread opinion, I, I, I had a tremendous amount of support. Yeah. Uh, lots of it from very well-known comedians, you know, Jack D, Ahmed Jalili, John Cleese, mm. um, Simon Evans, I, you know, lots of people who I can't name because they reached out privately, mm-hmm. uh, but didn't want to be associated with what happened in public. And that's interesting because it feeds back into what I'm saying exactly. about fear of sticking your head above the parapet. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the, 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 the public, I think there was, uh, I, I got almost no negative response from members of the public. A few mentalists on Twitter uh, assumed that the reason I turned it down is because I'm this really offensive comedian, which you know I'm not because you've seen my show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, I actually made my show more offensive than is my natural style, just to kind of push the boundary a little bit for the purposes of this particular show. Mm-hmm. I'm not normally someone who tries to, in fact, I'm never someone who tries to offend people. I don't see the point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just, but I am interested in being along the edge, walking along the edge and kind of yeah. playing with it. Um, but the feedback from a lot of people in the comedy world, in the comedy industry, which is super woke and super progressive, was very negative. So. Uh, I was going to say a fellow comedian, but uh, it was Kate Smurthwaite, so uh, I, I won. <laughs> uh, she went on the radio and uh, said that I was all right and a Nazi for turning down this contract. Um, <laughs> and there was there was quite a lot of people in the comedy world who thought that I'd some I violated some secret code of wokeness that we're all supposed to subscribe to. Um, uh, so yeah, it, it was a weird experience where kind of the vast majority of people are completely on board with what you're doing, except all your colleagues. You know? mm-hmm. um, and of course, the way that human brains work, uh, we catastrophize everything. So actually, probably what happened is, uh, you know, 10, 15% of people in the comedy world <laughs> who, are, who I don't respect and think are mental anyway, came out against me. Yeah. But my brain made it like, oh, everyone's against me. Uh, and it took me a couple of months to kind of go, actually, well, that, that isn't what happened. If you look objectively at, at, at what happened, very well-known comedians came out in support. Uh, a bunch of people no one's ever heard of criticized you. Most people were on your side. You know, yeah. you, you, yeah, yeah. you were kind of on the right side of this one. Yes. Um, but that isn't how human brains evolved. Yeah. We, we perceive threats and dangers as being far more significant. So mm-hmm. 10% of people criticizing you feels like everyone criticizing you. Yes. Absolutely. Even when you use the word mental, I slightly flinch because I'm like, can that actually be said nowadays without somehow getting mm. into trouble? And it's just, it's, a, it's it, maybe it's being on social media or maybe it's just the mainstream media that has kind of created this environment whereby people feel like they can't say what they think. Mm. I mean, that's absolutely the case nowadays, I think. What are your sort of, what's your take on it? Absolutely. I, I think everybody feels it. We all know yeah. it. Um, you know, I did, my, I did a preview of my show in Brighton, 
and I ask them in Brighton if they feel like they can't say what they think, and they don't. They don't feel like they can't because they have all right? the correct opinions, right? Uh, because they are the culturally dominant force <laughs> at the moment. Um, so if you have all the right opinions, if you think that there's 365 genders and you're prepared to revise it every day on the basis of what someone else tells you, mm -hmm. then you're not going to have a problem, right? Uh, but if you're, or, or, you know, look at any issue that is a hot topic today. Look at the gender pay gap, right? Mm -hmm. If you're prepared to accept the narrative that the gender pay gap is based exclusively on discrimination and is the product of evil patriarchy, then you're not going to have a problem. So you won't feel like you're being forced to censor yourself. But if you actually want to look at the facts of the gender pay gap yeah. and recognize that some of it, yes, is caused by discrimination, but a lot of it is caused by the choices that people make, by mm -hmm. the kind of careers that people pursue, uh, which are based on fundamental biological and psychological differences between men and women, uh, then you're going to find yourself in a position where you're not able to say what you think without being slandered. Yeah, uh, That's where we are. Um, and the vast majority of people understand this. Uh, but, you know, like I say, if you've got the right progressive opinions, you'll be fine. Everyone else, uh, you have to become a villain uh, in the public space uh, in order to have these perfectly centrist, reasonable opinions, as I do, or even to have the, the, to, to have the conversation. I mean, I host a show, as you know, mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, we get an expert in to talk about the gender pay gap and explain mm -hmm. to us, because we're just comedians, we don't know what we're talking about, <laughs> explain to us why is there a gender pay gap. And we get called Nazis for having that conversation, not for having an opinion, mm -hmm. but just for allowing another person the opportunity to explain their opinion mm -hmm. without even agreeing with it. So even if you invite me here today, uh, and I say something that you don't agree with, that still makes you a Nazi because you are in the same room as me. Yeah, That yeah. is the world that we're in now. So uh -huh. congratulations, I'll send you an armband. <laughs> oh man, I just think it's absolutely, it's, 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 it's ludicrous. Yeah. It's absolutely insane that that's how things have become. Mm. Um, and slightly tragic, but you're, you're working to try and you know, balance the scales, so to speak. And your show does a great job of doing that because mm. it's objective. Um, I think it's is it Ben Shapiro that says facts don't care about your emotions. Mm. Mm. Um, why do you think these topics are so emotionally charged? Why do you think people are so Oh, there's a very simple answer to that. Uh, there's a very simple answer to that, Elliot. And the reason that people get emotional about these issues is that they know that what they're saying is logically and factually unsound. So when you try to present facts or logic or rational arguments to challenge the idea, the example that I gave, the gender pay gap, mm -hmm. or whatever else it might be. Uh, you know, we're here in Edinburgh, I'm here at the Edinburgh Festival at the time that we record this. I mean, mm -hmm. I love the Edinburgh Festival, but if you go and watch most of the shows, it's Oxford and Cambridge graduates wanging on about how oppressed they are while a Guardian journal rubs one out in the corner. That's what they are, right? And if you challenge that narrative, if you challenge the idea that someone who went to private school and to Oxford and went straight from Oxford into a, 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 an accelerated career in comedy 
that person is massively oppressed because they have slightly more or less melanin in their skin or whatever, uh, you automatically have to be shut down and, and on an emotional basis because the facts are not there to support that. Mm -hmm. Because the facts are much more complex than that. Because the facts say that you shouldn't judge people on their skin color, right? Nigerian immigrants to this country and Indian immigrants to this country and Chinese immigrants to this country are some of the most successful people in society economically, mm -hmm. right? So the idea of white privilege in that context makes absolutely no sense. It's a, it's a hammer that is being used instead of a very fine measuring tool that, need, that is needed to calibrate. There are disparities between different ethnic groups and of course they have to be looked at, right? But it's a very complex picture you can't take a sledgehammer to this thing. You have to be very nuanced and very careful about what you look at. Mm -hmm. uh, but saying that isn't mm -hmm. what they want. They want you to just accept the narrative, mm -hmm. right? So you're white, I may be white or maybe not, depending on your definition. Therefore, you are more privileged than me automatically, right? Even if you've spent your whole life sleeping on the street, right? And I haven't. Uh, mm -hmm. So, and it's the same with men and women. It's like, it's very complex, these things. Uh, there, are, there are definitely situations, particularly historically, where society has been incredibly unfair to women and has treated them very badly. Mm -hmm. right? And that has to be acknowledged and that has to be remedied. Mm -hmm. It absolutely has to be remedied. Does that mean that all men are the beneficiaries of male privilege? No. The men dying in coal mines and in military action and whatever, they're not the beneficiaries of privilege. They're the, they are the product of a society that, again, for purely biological reasons, values a male life less than a female life. And that, that is driven by our biology. If you have two tribes of 10 people each, right, five men, five women, and one tribe sends its men to war and the other tribe sends its women to war, right, if one person come back, comes back from the war, Right. The man with five women can reproduce and replenish the tribe. Mm -hmm. If you left with one woman, your tribe's going to die out. Right. Mm -hmm. So men are less valuable biologically. Um, and this is the case in all kinds of other species. This is very This is like GCSE biology <laughs> yeah. that we're talking about yeah. <laughs> uh, and evolutionary psychology. But again, it's controversial. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so the picture is always much more complex than a tweet that some progressive activists put out. And the reason that they get emotional and heated, coming right back to your question, is that they don't want to have the actual conversation because the, the truth isn't on their side. I notice this whenever I'm having a conversation with another person. It doesn't have to be about politics. It could be just me having a, an argument with my wife, right? If I find myself getting emotional mm -hmm. when she's made a logical argument, I know there's some kind of bullshit going on with me mm -hmm. and vice versa, <laughs> right? And of course, it's easier to spot in other people, mm -hmm. but that's why. Yeah. That's why. It's a great answer. <laughs> um, it's, I mean, I was going to ask this a little bit later, but I'll ask it now because I think it's important. Uh, you were talking about nuance. I mean, Russell Brand actually said something. I don't know that it was his quote, but he said, tyranny is the deliberate removal of nuance. Mm. And I think like that's the stage that we're actually getting to. Um, how can how, how do you think people can cultivate a more nuanced perspective? Uh, I actually think that the vast majority of people have a nuanced perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just that the people who are shouting the loudest seem like they represent the people. <laughs> uh, 
The vast majority of the people in this country are not on Twitter. Hmm. The vast majority of the people in this country don't care about gender pronouns uh, in either direction. Right? They just want to be polite and respectful to other people and not offend people and not hurt them. But broadly speaking, they've got lives to live. They've got children to bring up. They've got jobs to go to. And it's really just comedians and social commentators and, you know, Islington vegans and whatever that, uh, that have the time to, to get into all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that, the, like I said, I think the vast majority of people already have a nuanced position. Uh, but, you know, the, the great thing about the modern world is that if you want to understand a particular issue in more detail, there is the research, there is the YouTube conversations, there are the experts that you can go and, and look at and make up your mind about what's actually happening, you know. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the narratives that, are, that exist in our society, I mean, anyone who speaks out, for example, anyone who says that they're not a feminist uh, is automatically evil, right? Now, by the definition of feminism, the, the idea that you should treat men and women, women equally, yeah, yeah. I'm a feminist, a hundred percent, right? But if you look at polling, the vast, vast, vast majority of women in this country, not just men, but women in this country, don't identify as a feminist, mm -hmm. right? And my wife included, and many, many, I speak to a lot of other comedians here who would never say anything about it in public, mm -hmm. women, who go, well, I'm not a feminist because I don't agree with this, I don't, right? So we, there is a reign of terror, essentially, where people are afraid to say what they actually think because they know of the consequences, even though they see right through this idea that feminism is about equality between men and women. It, it hasn't been about that for quite some time now. But that's when just terminology and words become loaded or radicalized in themselves. Yeah. I've had this discussion that feminism is, it's just equality of the sexes. Mm. Like most people are going to advocate for that. Absolutely. And yet the term itself, when you say it, doesn't seem to actually represent that. No. Well, because, <laughs> but this is a problem for feminists and I actually have a lot of empathy for second way feminists like uh, Christina Hoff Summers and Camille Paglia, who, 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 whose movement, a very valid and much needed movement, has been over overtaken by mental radicalists uh, who, uh, who are spreading completely bogus ideas mm -hmm. about men and women, and who, whose ideology is frankly just based on hating men. Uh, and I, and, I, and for, I think 45% of men at the last polling in this country said that feminism was uh, about hating men or something along those lines. Uh, and that number is only going to grow because, and, and women feel it too. That's why they don't identify as fair. This is the, the sad truth of, of, of our society is that the vast majority of women don't hate men and the vast majority of men don't hate themselves, right? Um, but the narrative isn't that. Mm -hmm. The narrative is you're either a feminist or you're a misogynist. There is no <laughs> in between. Yeah. And if you're a woman, and I know many women who don't identify as misogynist, uh, uh, well, rather they do identify as misogynist <laughs> because yeah. they're not feminists, therefore they have internalized misogyny, right? This is this pathetic invention. I have a, a black friend who I mentioned in the show, Zuby, he's a rapper. He's been on your show. Yeah, he has been yeah, on yeah. our show and he's doing very well. I think he's doing Joe Rogan very soon. <clears throat> oh, wow. Um, and he's a white supremacist, apparently. The guy's black. <laughs> I mean, these people have gone absolutely crazy. Oh, man. 
But yeah. it, it, that, that's where we are. Yeah. It, it is absolutely crazy. And, and the reason they have to invade, inv invent all these nonsensical terms is that it's much easier and unfortunately more effective than having the conversation. Because if you have the conversation, you might have to change your mind. Mm -hmm. And they don't want to do that. They've, they, what they've created is a world in which victimhood is currency. So the more of a victim you make yourself out to be, the more you can purchase with that currency, the more benefits you can get, the more pity you can get, the more retweets you can get, the more likes you can get, the more funding you can get. Mm -hmm. And that is why they will never accept any facts that counter the victimhood narrative because you're, you're taking the living away. That's why. <laughs> That's terrifying when you put it that way. Uh, I mean, my, my natural response to that question, you know, what would you do, is just to simply challenge your own beliefs, not exist in an echo chamber, mm. and maybe listen to somebody with a rational argument from the, a different side of the spectrum to yourself, mm. and try and listen to it without being triggered. Mm. <laughs> you know? mm. Like, just listen to what they have to say, hear them out. Well, this is the point I make in the show, is that I am someone who's right in the center of politics in terms of left and right, and uh -huh. very libertarian in terms of libertarian yes. versus authoritarian. Mm -hmm. We need the left and we need the right. We need both. You know, the left have some good ideas, some very valid ideas, uh, and they're driven by uh, uh, what I think is a moral purpose that is good. The left want people to be looked after and the vulnerable and the weak and the, the disadvantaged to be looked after. I think that's a very good, noble agenda. Mm -hmm. Uh, the right are pragmatic and realistic. Yeah. And that is also important because if you just have a moral agenda with no regard for reality, mm -hmm. then that's how you get the Soviet Union. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's how it happens, right? Yeah. So the two sides actually are both necessary. Uh, and if you're on the right, it's very important to be cognizant of the fact that capitalism is not without its problems. Mm -hmm. And if you're on the left, it's very important not, not to go off the deep end in the other direction and go, capitalism is the worst system that's ever been. We must tear it down and create the perfect society. Because we've tried that. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and the path forward lies in both sides understanding that you know, for the right particularly, what they need to get is that capitalism isn't working for an increasingly large number of people. Mm -hmm. Uh, particularly the young generation. Uh, you can't expect people to be capitalists when they can't have capital. If you have a generation of people who can't afford property, mm -hmm. who have no way of ever achieving that without their parents helping them, people will become disillusioned with capitalism. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, the, for the left, they need to understand that, yes, there are problems with capitalism and yes, they need to be fixed, but without throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And that's why I take the nuanced position on many issues of being in the center and kind of going, well, what's the actual truth of this, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you know, in terms of some of the problems with the right, I think they're quite obvious, but in terms of the left, you know, the minimum wage is a very good example. It, it's an idea that is based on a very solid moral purpose, which is people should be able to live off what they earn. The problem though, is that that isn't how economics and the market works. Uh, it, as with any other product, the, when the price goes up, demand goes, well, not any, but most other products, demand goes down, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and what happens when you increase the minimum wage is companies start looking for alternatives 
to paying that wage. So they start investing in modern technology, uh, which be, so instead of high, instead of paying the cashier in Tesco ten quid instead of seven quid, what mm -hmm. they do is they create more self check self service checkouts, mm. right? Uh, and the other th or they just hire fewer staff and they try and make do with fewer. So the intention is good, but actually it hurts the very people who is trying to help. Yes. So you need to have a practical approach combined with a moral approach. Mm -hmm. And that's where the left and the right need to mesh together. Mm -hmm. And that's why sane conversations are important because instead of having people screaming at each other that their position is the only true faith and everyone else is a heretic, you have to look at the practical consequences of your actions. Mm -hmm. But also remember that it is important to have a cohesive society because um, you know the, all the evidence is very clear that particularly in Western economies and Western democracies, uh, the, the, least, the, the more unequal the society is, the worse it is for everyone, including the people at the very top. Mm. Right? So having a measure of equality is very important for everybody, mm -hmm. but how you achieve that equality is also very important. And, 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 that's, and then that's how you have nuance. So you have to look at both sides and go, well, what's actually true here? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because obviously having a background in economics and politics, that gives you quite a good uh, you know, overview or, or grounding for looking at the political spectrum. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So this is why when, when, when you, know, you talk about any of the issues, the hot button issues, whether yeah. it's you know, institutional racism, gender pay gap, trans stuff, I always say I'm not anti these things, I'm pro-reality. Mm -hmm. That's all mm. I'm for, I'm just pro-reality. And that is a controversial position now, yeah, being yeah. pro-facts and pro-reality and pro-truth. And, and you know, I don't like Ben Shapiro's uh, idea that facts don't care about your feelings. Mm -hmm. I mean, facts don't care about your feelings, <laughs> but human beings should care about yes. the feelings of other human beings. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the question is, does the fact that you feel bad entitle you to misrepresent the truth and demand things on that basis? Mm. The answer is no. Mm -hmm. But if you have the feeling that capitalism doesn't work for you because your generation can't afford property, that is a perfectly legitimate feeling. Yeah. How we address that is a question of practicality and reality. Mm -hmm. uh, but you going, well, my life doesn't work and me going, well, facts don't care about your feelings. That isn't a way to a healthy society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's funny that when you were talking about right and left, it reminded me of there's a cartoon or meme online. People might uh, know what I'm talking about, where it's got the right, the center and the left. And on the right, it's got a person with a huge brain and tiny heart. Mm. And then on the left, it's got a huge heart, tiny brain and the person in the middle is quite well balanced. But I mean, this is what I, I guess interests me is that we, we have, I guess, like a broadening of the political spectrum left and right because the ideas are becoming more extreme. I mean, certainly with labels like alt-right mm. and you know far-right, which means that what the, the, the spectrum is just widening and widening. If you're a centrist, you know, are you actually right in the center of the spectrum or does that actually put you right of center if society's going further left? Mm. Do you see what I mean? I do see what you mean. And <laughs> I think it, it's really hard to know. I mean, uh, if you look at where we are in society today, it's tempting to feel like society is moving further left. But I would argue with the 
election results over the last three or four years wouldn't suggest that at all, yeah. actually. Hmm. Uh, I think what's happening is that and David Goodhart, who we've had on Trigonometry, who wrote uh, The Road to Somewhere, uh, he talks about this very powerfully. What we've had for probably about 30 or 40 years is a, uh, a kind of what people, what someone like Nigel Farage would describe it as a, as a, a liberal metropolitan elite who make up about 20 to 25% of our society. They have had the reins of power culturally uh, over our society pretty much since the, the late 90s, certainly. And what they've done in this time is they've made their view the only acceptable view to be spoken out loud. So if you were someone who had concerns about immigration, for example, mm -hmm. in, in, the, in the noughties or late 90s, mm -hmm. that was not a legitimate view to have in public. In some ways, it still isn't. You know, if you believe that immigration should be uh, controlled, it should be limited to a certain number of people, um, that is a view that it was considered beyond the pale for many years. And anyone who expressed that view immediately became far right. Now, what's happened over the last four or five years is the kind of half of the country who are not the metropolitan liberal elite, They've stuck two fingers up to those people and said, well, you don't want to listen to us? Okay, well, we'll speak through the ballot box. Uh, and so the socially conservative part of our society, which is about half, uh, they've, they've, they've been speaking. Uh, and mm -hmm. uh, that is one of the reasons that I have always advocated listening to those people, because when you don't, bad things happen. Hmm. We've kind of tiptoed around it. Before we started, I asked you, what are you most passionate about? Mm. You said trigonometry. Mm. So how does it come about? Well, trigonometry is a, a YouTube show that mm. I host with Francis Foster, who's another comedian. Uh, and it probably came about, I would say, there were two trigger points that... <laughs> Pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> there were two trigger points that set us on that course. The first one, I think, was Brexit. Right. Because both Francis and I voted Remain. And I think it's fair to describe both of us as, up until that point, kind of head in the sand Remainers. In the sense that we were like, well, of course, we're gonna, of course Remain's going to win the referendum. It's just a few stupid racists who want to vote leave. <laughs> that, was, that was probably our view at the time. Yeah. But I've always been someone that, as I tried to be, as I said, who looks at reality. Uh -huh. Now, if the reality is that 52% of the electorate voted to leave the country, mm -hmm. and the reality also is that I know for a fact that British people are by and large welcoming, tolerant, open-minded, reasonable people, those two things don't fit together with the preconception, the preconception that I had that Brexit was about hating immigrants or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. So. That's where I went, okay, these two things don't, don't they clash. Mm -hmm. Let's find out what the truth is. And that's where you kind of take the red pill and dive into the rabbit hole because um, you suddenly realize what it was really about. Uh, and I wanted to create a space where we could open up every rabbit hole and dive into it, uh, whether that's Brexit, whether that's Donald Trump, whether that's 
the gender pay gap, whether that, that's any of those issues that are, are very important. Um, so Brexit probably would be the first one. Um, and the second one now escapes me for some reason. Um, I, I think that was probably the big one. Uh, I, I suppose the second one, what I was going to say is the Kathy Newman, Jordan Peterson. Interview. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> uh, that was the second one, really, particularly for me, I think, because I was already coming to the point where I was starting to feel like the mainstream media are not doing their job. And if there's one interview that encapsulates everything <laughs> that is wrong with the mainstream media, it would be that interview. Uh, and so we felt like no one is stepping up to it because people are afraid. Mm -hmm. They're afraid to have these conversations. And we had nothing to lose. I mean, it's one of my favorite quotes from the movie Fight Club. It's, it's only once you've lost everything that you're free to do anything. You know, and <laughs> neither of us at that time had a career worth speaking about. We were doing very well, performing, you know, at some of the bigger clubs, but... Neither of us was going to be on TV uh, because of the way that the industry works and, and neither of us was ever going to be breaking through and being, you know, even making a decent living out of comedy, probably, uh, because that's how, how it works. <laughs> uh, so we had nothing to lose uh, and probably everything to gain. And fundamentally, we both felt that what was happening in society was wrong, that we need honest conversations, we need long-form conversations like this yeah. uh, without gotcha journalism, without misrepresenting people. Um, and the interesting thing that I found, and I don't know if you found uh, this with Inspired Edinburgh, is that if you talk to someone for an hour and they've got flaws in their thinking, they will come out by themselves. Yeah. Uh, you don't actually need to badger people into submission. Mm -hmm. And so I see television now is actually it's the clickbait medium. We talk about clickbait being on the internet. Actually, television is the clickbait medium now. Mm. And as you know, as you mentioned, I've appeared on TV a bunch of times, and the only thing that happens there is clickbait. Yeah. And it's, it's only on trigonometry <laughs> and other podcasts and YouTube shows that you can actually have a long-form, interesting conversation mm -hmm. with someone like Peter Hitchens or someone like Douglas Murray or Peter Tatchell or anyone mm. who's actually done something, who's, who's said something valuable, and you give them a chance to actually express themselves, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, and it's amazing to me how many people who would fundamentally disagree with, let's say, Douglas Murray, if he was on question time and given five, 10 second segments, as, as he would be before mm -hmm. being shouted down, <laughs> uh, how many people that I know who would disagree with him fundamentally on that watched our interview with Douglas Murray and said, oh, that guy actually makes a lot of sense, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and that's kind of one of the things you find is that when you start to talk to people, is the vast majority of people have actually pretty sane ideas about things, Yeah. Um, particularly if they're given the opportunity to express them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I've got a couple of other sort of quick fire questions mm. about trigonometry, but mm. just I think that this is a good time to ask um, because you've mentioned the mainstream media. What do you think is the function of the mainstream media today? The function of the mainstream media today is advocacy. That is the function of the mainstream media. Every single news outlet is owned and controlled by a small number of people who have a very precise agenda. The BBC isn't that, 
uh, but it's still controlled by a very small number of people who have a very precise agenda. Uh, and if you watch a range of media as I do, everything from the BBC and read The Guardian through to watching Fox News and reading right-wing newspapers, mm -hmm. uh, and I write for a range of publications myself, uh, it is very clear that every single one of them has an agenda. You will not get an article about free speech that is pro-free speech into The Guardian. No matter what your contacts are, no matter what your connections are, no matter what, what, how eloquent you're writing, how valuable you are as a, as a writer or as a commentator, they will not have that. And equally, you probably won't get an article about the importance of you know, diversity quotas into The Spectator or something, right? Mm -hmm. every, they're all, every single news outlet is no longer about objective information. I mean, the Times tried to, tries to balance it up, I suppose. There may be one or two exceptions, but broadly speaking, uh, they are all vehicles for the delivery of an agenda to the public. That is the function of the mainstream media. That is the function of the mainstream media. And the difference between the mainstream media and new media like this isn't that you don't have an agenda. You also have an agenda, and so do I. But you and I say so publicly. We say what our agenda is, right? For example, our agenda on trigonometry is the pursuit of truth mm -hmm. in contrast with the mainstream narrative. So we are seeking out people to talk about the things that may not be true, that are being presented as true, which is its own lens and it's skewed. It's a skewed lens mm -hmm. and there is no denying that but we don't pretend that that isn't the lens. We say publicly what our opinions are, what our positions are, what our views are, what our angles are, where we are politically, mm -hmm. right? We say that publicly. So mm -hmm. you know that when you come and watch trigonometry that it's hosted by an old school lefty and a centrist with libertarian views, right? You know that, yeah. right? So you know, for example, that we may not be that, that welcoming of super woke ideas. We, we don't agree with them. We're actually quite welcoming, but those people don't come on our show, mm -hmm. even though we keep inviting them, right? They won't come on. Um, <laughs> and that is the difference between the mainstream media and the new media is the honesty about declaring your position. Because mainstream journalists all have a position. I mean, there is no way that anyone who watched, for example, the Kathy Newman, Jordan Peterson interview would be under any illusion about her views on feminism. Yep. And she came out the next day on Twitter and tweeted something, viva something, viva feminism. Mm. Long live feminism, right? Mm. But if you challenged her in the course of the interview and you said to her that she's not being an objective journalist, mm -hmm. she would not accept that. She would say she's being an objective journalist. Hmm. even when it's completely transparent and plain to see for everybody that she's not. Yeah. And it's exactly the same with the BBC. Mm -hmm. And it's exactly the same with every other news outlet that's out there. Yeah. Their function is advocacy yeah. for their political views. Mm -hmm. That is what the function of the mainstream media is. Hmm. See, it's interesting. I mean, I personally, I'm not a big fan of the word agenda. Mm. I think it sounds a little bit clandestine. I don't think that I have an agenda. I maybe have a sort of like a mission or a purpose, mm. as grandiose as that well, might sound. But that's the same thing. But 
Yeah, yeah, it, it is. Um, but I just feel like agenda sounds a bit more like cloak and daggery. Well, one <laughs> man's purpose is another man's agenda. <laughs> fair point, fair point. A couple of quick fire questions for you then. Um, what's been your favourite episode? Oh, we've had so many. It's really hard to say. I mean, Douglas Murray was, was yeah. a big one. Uh, I'm actually a huge fan of some of our more uh, obscure episodes. Okay. Uh, one of our good friends who we've had on the show a couple of times now is uh, Doc, Dr. Pippa Malmgren, who's a former advisor to two US presidents, and she owns her own uh, tech company now. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the things she talks about is the huge impact of technology, surveillance technology, the social credit system in China, and all of these things that are essentially coming to take over our lives. And in fact, they've already taken over our lives, we just haven't realized. Um, so that's probably my favorite one. She's an absolutely fantastic, very interesting person. I'd recommend that one. Cool, yeah. I'll check that one out. I've not seen that one. Um, what, what's your vision for the, I mean, I call it brand. I mean, I think it's bigger than just a show, so mm. yeah. Uh, well, the first thing is we want to be the Joe Rogan of the UK. I mean, at the time we're recording this, Joe Rogan has just had Bernie Sanders on his show. That's right. Yeah. And if you think about the fact that he's had Bernie Sanders and, you know, Miley Yiannopoulos and Jordan Peterson and Eric Weinstein and, and, and all the, and Brett Weinstein and all of the, like everybody from across the whole political spectrum. Mm -hmm. That's what we want to do. And we want to be the number one YouTube show. I don't want to make you feel like we're in competition. But <laughs> Not at all, no. We're in very different um, niches yeah. apart from anything else. But yeah, yeah. We want sure to I be like the that. number one YouTube show and podcast in the UK dealing with the political issues of yeah. the day yeah. in a long form balanced way. Nice. That's our goal. Uh, and the purpose of that is not just for our own benefit and enrichment or whatever, not at all. We view ourselves as offering an alternative to the advocacy of the mainstream media. Um, and we know that it's valuable to people. Mm -hmm. And so we want to spread that value to as many people as we can. I like it. I like it. Um, I've got a couple of questions around, um, I mean, they're, more, they're probably things that we've already covered, but themes that I felt emerged from your show, mm. like political correctness, outrage culture, being offended. One of the quotes that you used, which I really liked, was being offensive and free speech are not the same thing. Mm. Where does one stop and the other begin? Mm. Well, people being offensive is a consequence and byproduct. It's like a side effect of free speech, right? you have to put up with it in order to get the benefits <laughs> of the pill that you're taking, right? Uh, so if you want to have a free society, you have to be tolerant of the fact that some people are going to be offensive. There will always be a minority of people who do that. In the same way that it's the price you pay. You know, the price of living in a free society may be that you have more crime, if you think about it, right? Because if you had a complete total police state, you might have some fewer murders per year, right? Mm -hmm. If we were constantly watched, every movement was controlled. If we had some system of pre-crime, everybody had a, a chip in their brain, right? Yeah. That would prevent crime, right? But we don't do that because we, ex we understand that there are certain freedoms that are valuable, uh, like your ability to have your own private thoughts, mm -hmm. right? Um, even if that means that there are bad consequences. There are trade-offs in, in every policy decision, 
And the, the, the idea of having free speech is that there is a price you pay just for everything else. You know, if you want to have the National Health Service, there's a price to pay. Mm -hmm. If you want to have freedom, there's a price to pay for that as well. Hmm. <laughs> uh, there's another quote that was in your show that I, I loved um, at the very end. Political correctness is fascism pretending to be manners. Well, that's George Carlin. <laughs> George Carlin. Quote. Yeah, that's a George Carlin quote. Um, and yeah, that, that was George Carlin was one of my great heroes. Yeah. Growing up, I, I remember watching him and thinking, oh, this guy's saying that something that no one else is saying. Yeah. And it's absolutely true. Yeah. And he was someone who just like me had a big problem with the right and a big problem with the left. He saw the hypocrisies on both sides yeah. and he went after them mercilessly mm -hmm. uh, and in a very funny way. Yeah. Uh, and that's, yeah, political correctness is fascism pretending to be manners. We've weaponized niceness <laughs> and politeness now to a degree where it is taking on authoritarian tendencies. Mm -hmm. um, and that is a problem. Yeah, yeah. There's another quote that I really like from Dan Pena, who's one of my past guests, the $50 billion man. He says, political correctness is a manifestation of low self-esteem, which I think is probably... Well, th this is where good. we are. I think that's very accurate. I, I agree with that entirely. I think where we are now is we've created a society of people. We've gone from a culture where we taught people to be resilient and to know their own value, irrespective of what other people said about them, to be easily offended and to crumble at the earliest sign of challenge. So instead of controlling your emotions, people who are not able to control their own emotions try to control other people, right? And I've always thought that you know, the point of life isn't to stop people messing with you, is to become unmessable with. <laughs> That's the point, yeah. right? And it's the journey that every comedian goes through, right? Is we talk about being bulletproof on stage, right? You're trying to get to a point in life where no matter who heckles you or what they say or what happens on stage, you are able to deal with it effectively. Hmm. That is the journey of a comedian. And the best comedians, and I, I'm certainly not in that category yet, but the best comedians, when you watch them, you think this guy couldn't give a fuck about the audience. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's power. Not caring what other people think is power. It's a superpower. And that is what we should be teaching young people. And that is the journey of every human being is to get to a point where you don't care what other people think. Right. It doesn't mean that you don't care about their feelings. Right. Mm -hmm. But you're not afraid of other people. Mm -hmm. And you come to any conversation or any discussion or performance or whatever it is that you're doing from a place of I know who I am I know that what I'm saying uh, is true to me as I understand it right I know that I'm not out to hurt other people and I'm going to say what I think and I'm going to listen to what other people say and no one's going to die out of that mm -hmm. right uh, we've mm -hmm. become a society where we try to stop other people messing with us instead of try and learn how to be the kind of person that doesn't care if other people try and mess with them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love that. Um, but I mean, you know, to sort of counter that, uh, and I didn't know this until you said it, three and a half thousand people were arrested for, um, you know, anti-freedom of speech or like hate speech. 
um, which I just find absolutely staggering. And, mm. you know, 3,300 people. 3,300. Yeah, and terrifying in equal measure. Mm. I mean, do you think it should be illegal to say anything? Uh, yes, I do. So there are things that should be illegal to say. Okay. Uh, if you encourage other people to commit crimes, inciting hate. Incite, well, it's not, it's inciting. not hate. If you encourage other people to commit crimes, mm -hmm. that should be illegal, just like the crime itself, right? If I tell you or incite you or brainwash you to go and kill someone, that should be a crime because I'm 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 creating that crime with you, right? Okay. Um, on the hate thing. I am kind of ambivalent about hate. I, the idea that we should criminalize hateful speech, I mean, it sounds right, but how it's implemented is it, it, I think that, you know, if you've got, if someone stands up on a street, on a pallet on a street corner and says that gay people are sinful and evil and whatever, should they be arrested? I'm not sure about that. Uh, I think, I, I certainly don't agree with that person. I don't mm -hmm. like them saying that. Mm -hmm. uh, should they be arrested? I, I'm honestly not sure. Uh, if, they, if they say that that person, that the gay should be punished or killed or beaten up or attacked, then that should be illegal because those things are crimes. But should it be, I mean, should it be illegal for me uh, to hate someone. Should it be legal to hate people? I mean, we all hate some people, right? Mm -hmm. So should that be legal? I, I'm very, very undecided about that. I'm very clear that inciting other people to, to commit crimes, and th they may not necessarily be hateful or violent, inciting someone to commit tax fraud should be illegal, mm. right? Uh, telling someone, hey, oh, hey, you should avoid your taxes or, or whatever the violation might be should be treated in a similar way to the original crime. Sounds like it would be a challenge to police that, though. Yeah. In terms of proving it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, but the problem that you have now is, is not so much that. The problem is that it's about interpretation. Mm -hmm. I may well be on board with a law that says you shouldn't be allowed to stand up on a street corner and say gay people are evil, they should be punished, and they will be punished, right? Uh, and they need gay conversion therapy or whatever. I may well be on board with a law like that. But the question is about the application, and this is why the Count Dankula case was a perfect example, mm -hmm. and, and others that I'm, I talk about in the show, where the context is stripped away. The, the, the ironic or jokey nature of, of, the, of what was said is stripped away. Yes. And a literal interpretation is imposed yep. on that particular word or sentence or whatever, and that is prosecuted as a hate crime. Yeah. So the issue there for me is, is very much with the misapplication of the law that we have on, on our books now. And the law is very vague and deliberately written to be that way. Yeah. Uh, that, that to me is a much bigger issue than should it be illegal or should it not be illegal. I think if we were, you know, finding people who, who spread hate, mm, yeah, I'd be okay with that. I'd be fine. And if we were prosecuting, I'd probably be okay with that as well. You know? mm -hmm. But I am not okay with someone doing a joke that is obviously a joke. Yeah. And that being taken literally and prosecuted and then becoming a hate criminal for that. Yeah. But I mean, Marcus Meachin, Kent Ankula on your show said Conte context no longer matters. Yeah. That's it's what, no longer relevant. That's what the prosecutor said in his case. Yeah. yeah. And, and the judge, by convicting him, obviously accepted it. Yeah. Yeah. 
which is slightly worrying. I'm wondering if there's anything that we've said that could be completely misrepresented. Mm. <laughs> probably. <laughs> yeah, probably not for hate speech purposes, yeah. but certainly for hate purposes. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, it's just one thing that I quickly want to ask you before diving into some of the deeper questions that I've got, and it's about um, people being critical of the media, but then using or leveraging the media in order to get attention for themselves mm. seems a bit like either biting the hand that feeds you or hypocrisy. And it seems to be quite a lot of people that are, that are willing to do that. Well, uh, I suppose you're pointing the finger at me in some ways. No, I mean, I, I actually I considered whether that would be directed at you, but it wasn't. No, I don't think that's true. So who are you talking um, about then? Ah, uh, I mean, the person that I had, I don't know, I thought maybe Katie Hopkins was, I don't know if it's fair to say that she's critical of the mainstream media or not. I don't know enough about her. I suppose she probably is, but I'm certainly not one who, who's going to defend Katie um, Hopkins for reasons that you're aware of. I yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sure. I know. Um, <laughs> but... I, certainly in my case, I, I can only speak for myself. I go in the mainstream media because I naively perhaps believe that things can change. So when I go in the mainstream media and try and make the reasonable rational argument and they all look like idiots, I think that potentially could benefit the mainstream media because they might go, oh, well, that got really like the public are totally on his side. Maybe we're doing something wrong. Yeah. Sounds very naive, but that's why I do it. I'm not doing it for attention for myself. Um, trigonometry will be a big YouTube show within the next couple of years. Mm -hmm. but that is going to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, me going on the mainstream media accelerates that process, but it's going to happen either way. I don't really need them. Uh, yeah. I go on there because it's an opportunity to say what I think. That, that's really why. So I'm critical of them on the mainstream media. I mean, yeah, I yeah, went I on know, the BBC yes. and I called them out for, for their bullshit. <laughs> yeah, you did. Uh... Yeah, I'm trying to think now when I when I say it, who it is specifically that I was thinking about. I don't really know. Um, I mean, obviously, well, I don't know. There's, it's just what I see is that there's people that are critical of the mainstream media, but are happy to, you know, use the mainstream media for their own, what looks like personal gain. You'd have to give me an example, otherwise. Uh, is Tommy Robinson clutching at straws? I, I don't know that he's using the mainstream media. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I should maybe revisit that one. Yeah, I think I, I think you'd have to give me a, a kind right, of okay. more I'll, meaty I'll, example. Uh, yeah, uh, I just thought it was, I wanted to get your perspective on it more than anything, as opposed mm. to coming at you with facts, Constantine. Yeah, <laughs> should have known better, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I've got facts some don't care about your questions. <laughs> Oh man, walked right into that. Uh, <laughs> I've got some of the sort of bigger, deeper philosophical type questions. Um, mm. And it'll be interesting to hear you talk about this stuff because I don't generally hear you going there. So mm. in terms of life purpose, I mean, what do you feel is your sort of purpose in life? Speak the truth. Speak the truth. Yeah. Powerful. That, that's the only thing that you can do. Um, and what you think is the truth will change many times over the course of your life. Uh, as you refine your ideas, what I think the truth is has changed from three years ago dramatically because I've tried, I'm trying to educate myself. Yeah. Um, and the purpose of speaking the truth first and foremost is your own growth because the more you speak what you think is the truth, the more you realize how wrong you are because your perception of the truth comes up against facts, reality, other people's ideas, and eventually you chisel out all the things that aren't accurate and you're left with a core of things that are actually true. 
Um, so, <laughs> I, and I think speaking the truth is a proxy for facilitating a better society. Because a society in which people honestly discuss the difficult issues that, that put them in, con in conflict is a society in which those issues are more likely to be resolved and you're more likely to have a cohesive society. You know, we are torn apart by Brexit right now. Brexit never would have happened if it wasn't for the fact that people's opinions were being suppressed mm. and people's right to say what they thought and to have their views reflected in government policy was suppressed. Yeah. That never would have happened. Donald Trump is in part a product of political correctness. Very divisive figure, whether you like him or you don't like him, he is a divisive figure, you have to accept that. He is a product of political correctness. He's a product of suppressing the views of many, many people and making it dangerous and damaging to have perfectly legitimate opinions about immigration, about integration, about the, you know, the, the globalization, all, all of these issues. Um, so having a society and creating a society where you speak the truth and you encourage others to speak the truth, which is what we try and do in trigonometry, uh, to me, that's a worthwhile purpose. Okay. I've just been sort of thinking while she's been talking. Um, I mean, is there any, is there actually anything as the truth as opposed to just your truth in terms of you ultimately are always probably going to have some elements of blind spots or some sort of perspective that's going to differ from someone else. And what's so how the way you, to find that out? Well, this discussion right. or educating yourself. So you have to say what you think and the other person has to say what they think. Yes. And that's how you find out what the truth is. Yeah. The truth is a collective illusion. Yes. That's yeah. what it is. Yeah. It's a shared <laughs> delusion about reality. None of us have the ability to assess reality, right? But what we have is the ability to get closer to it because you have your own, you're sitting where you are and you see your field of vision, I see mine. Yeah. So if we have a debate about what this room looks like. Yeah, there's a fireplace there. No, there's not. <laughs> exactly, and I don't know. Yeah. Right? And, and, and you saying that it's there, all I need to do is look behind and I can verify where it's there. Right? Yeah. So there is no such thing as your truth because if your truth is that there's a fireplace there and there isn't, and I look and there isn't one, well, that's not true, right? Okay. But the truth emerges from our discussion. Yeah. And that's the purpose of speaking the truth as you see it, is that you have the opportunity to challenge and be challenged by others to better, to create a better map of what the reality is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what would you like your legacy to be? Uh, I, you know, it's very presumptuous to talk about legacy. Uh, I'm still a relatively young man. Um, I don't even know what I'll be doing 10 years from now. Uh, maybe I'll get bored of comedy having got to a very high level or whatever and I'll be doing something else. Um, yeah, I think I think thinking about legacy is, is quite pompous and um, it, it, uh, my view is that you're giving yourself a significance that is entirely unmerited by thinking about your legacy. Um, I think if you follow your purpose, your legacy will be created automatically, mm -hmm. whatever, <clears throat> whatever that is. Uh, I don't think the, the purpose of your life is to create legacy. I think the purpose of your life is to pursue your Live a life with purpose. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, to I mean, I totally it's take a that byproduct. On. Yes, of course. No, I take that point on board completely. I think the question originally when I 
sort of formulated it was inspired by it was like a personal development exercise whereby you had to um, project yourself at your own funeral and you know what were the sort of people saying um, which you know it's slightly different but equally I think if you're able to think you know when I am not here anymore what would I like people to uh, say about me or how would I like to have kind of left a, an imprint, mm. you know, a dent in the universe to quote Steve Jobs. Yeah, I know <clears> I know what you mean, but I think that the test of what will people say about you at your funeral isn't necessarily an accurate reflection of your legacy or your contribution. I mean, think mm. about Alan Turing. Mm -hmm. What would people have said at his funeral? How many people would have been at his funeral? Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know. I, yeah, imagine no, no, it, I, I, I imagine there wasn't many. Yep. And I imagine the people who chose not to come to that funeral probably thought of him badly. But in, in the fullness of time, our thoughts about him have changed and that was, that is now his legacy. Yes. Uh, equally, there are many for leaders of the Soviet regime who would have been spoken about very, uh, very powerfully with a lot of love and appreciation at the oh. funeral. Most of the Soviet citizens cried when Joseph Stalin died. But his legacy isn't being loved by his people. His legacy is that he was someone who murdered millions of his own people. Yeah. So your legacy isn't determined, in my opinion, by what people say at your funeral or who turned up to it. Your legacy is something that echoes through the ages and you won't know what your legacy is mm -hmm. while you're alive. Yep. You just won't. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think you just, you, you do what you do and you see what happens. <laughs> How do you define success? Hmm. Well, it's kind of easy with, with a lot of the things that I do, it's all about, there's very simple metrics, I suppose, right? You know, how many people came to your show, how many tickets did you sell? how much money you made, how many people watch your show, you know, how quickly is it growing, how many subscribers do you have, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so I suppose those things are all proxies for the end result, which is delivering open conversations to people or funny comedy or interesting comedy to people. They're all a way of saying, how many people did we touch today with this? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we have some reasonably decent metrics for how you do that. Do you think there is a correlation between the quality of your content and the number of uh, subscribers that you have? Uh, I think there is a correlation in our case. Okay. <laughs> uh, is there a correlation, you know, is Love Island better than trigonometry? There you go. That, so with us, I, I would say that we're very new, of course, and we started from scratch with no funding or anything else, but we're growing very quickly. That is a reflection of the quality of the content. Um, Who's to say whether that's true or not? Me. <laughs> I'm going to challenge it and then we'll arrive at a truth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you, yeah I guess I'm, I'm just telling you my opinion. Of course. Uh, no, no, it's good. <laughs> but but that, that's, that's where we are. Yeah. Uh, and, and you may be, uh, you know, I mean, this is the thing with, with comedy as well. It's like, is a really popular comedian better than a comedian who has a cult following that is much smaller. Mm. Uh, and it, it depends, that, that's a matter of taste. It really depends on your perspective. You know, is, is Michael McIntyre better than Stuart Lee? You know, 
that is very much a matter for interpretation. I mean, is Love Island worse than trigonometry? Well, if you're an intellectual snob like me, right, then, then trigonometry is a lot better. Yeah. Right. But if you just want some something to put on in the background while you make dinner, yeah, and you're not really that interested in ideas, you're much more interested in kind of people's relationships and the kind of the soap opera of things. Well, that's right up your street. It's a much more mass market. I mean, is a is a McDonald's burger better than a than a meal out at a Michelin star restaurant? Well, the statistics would say that you sell more and you make more money if you sell burgers. Is that what you want to be doing, selling burgers? It, it really depends on, yeah. on what your perspective on life is. Yes, yeah. Ah, the beauty of nuance, eh? Yeah. <laughs> What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Plan to fail. Oh, wow. Who gave you that? I studied NLP. Okay. Uh, some time ago, and I think that's a, a Richard Bandler quote, one of yeah. the co-founders of NLP. Uh, plan to fail is a very simple and very powerful idea that uh, we like to idealize things, uh, particularly our plans. So let's say you want to lose weight. You see in your head, you're eating less, exercising more, right? And you do that for a week, and you do that for two weeks, and you're losing weight, and you're feeling great, and you're looking healthy, and you're really happy. And then you have a setback, right? You, you get home at one o'clock in the morning, you're hungry, <laughs> you make yourself a lasagna and stuff it down, right? The temptation for a lot of people is to wake up the next day and go, well, I failed, mm -hmm. this didn't work, I'm gonna binge eat myself into an early coma, mm -hmm. right? If you plan for setbacks, if you plan to have setbacks, you can anticipate them and you can be prepared for them, and you can get back on the horse the next day. Oh, I fucked up. Well, fine. But that was always going to happen, wasn't it? Right? Let's get back on the healthy diet. Plan to fail. So what failures are you anticipating and planning for then? Well, they're not. It's not even, I guess, a more accurate rephrasing, I suppose, would be plan to have setbacks. Right, yeah. It's not always going to be your failure. So, for example, we're in Edinburgh right now during the Edinburgh Festival. I knew coming up here that... If I was seen by the right reviewers, I would get a very positive uh, review. Mm -hmm. I would get a positive look at what I'm doing. But I also knew that there would be people who would come and see the show and would not be objective about it. They would be triggered by me talking about the fact that I talked to Piers Morgan or showing a clip of me on Fox News or talking about free speech mm -hmm. in general. Mm -hmm. They would be triggered by it and they would write me deeply unfair, inaccurate, simply lie-filled reviews in order to try and take me down. I knew that would happen. And it already has happened, as you know. Mm -hmm. right? I've had, some, I've had a five-star review. I had a brilliant review from The Spectator. But I also had someone who called my show reactionary nonsense <laughs> and misrepresented pretty much everything that I said. Mm -hmm. I knew that would happen. And I told about it to other people. I told my wife about it, mainly to prepare her and myself for that happening. That's not to say that when it happened, I wasn't, that didn't upset me. Yeah. It did, but not nearly as much as it would have done. And I also knew that it was coming. So when it happened, I was like, oh, it's happened. Not very nice. On we go. Um, the same with, with trigonometry. The day we sat down with Francis Foster, my co-host for trigonometry, um, we're just sitting down in a pub and we were talking about starting a podcast. 
I said to him at the time, I said, you realize we're going to be called Nazis. We're going to be smeared. We're going to be slandered. They're going to come after us. You're going to lose work in the comedy industry. So am I. Right? All of this is going to happen. And he was like, really? What? You, really? Well, it's all happened. Hmm. And, you ha and again, when it happened, very unpleasant. Didn't feel like I predicted it, but I did predict it and it took the edge off. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's more about planning to have setbacks. You know, when you're doing a show, you will, you'll turn up and the camera won't work. Someone will trip over and break a piece of equipment worth 500 quid. All of this stuff will happen. And you can't have a perfect plan in your head because things never go that way. Uh, you have to plan to have disappointments and setbacks. Yep. It's good advice. Mm. <laughs> if you had the opportunity to speak to your 20-year-old self, what would you say? Hmm. See, I don't believe that... I think everybody goes through the journey that they have to go through to be who they are. So I'm not sure that my 20-year-old self would have given a fuck what I thought or listened to it. And that was the journey that he had to go through to grow. So at 20 years old, he probably wouldn't have listened to any advice. Mm -hmm. And he had to grow through his own painful experiences to open up his mind to be willing to listen to other people's advice. Mm. So uh, uh, I'm not, I suppose if we were, I, I appreciate it's not a very helpful answer. I suppose if you're asking me what advice I would give to another person who's in their 20s now, who is like the me of then, um, what would I say? I would say be yourself and don't be afraid and learn skills. Mm -hmm. Don't pursue professions, learn skills. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. Because the right combination of skills can create a profession. Yeah. Uh, whereas if you just learn a profession, that's very that that will either be there or not be there. Yes. You know? yes. So if you learn to be a translator, yeah, you will be a translator until machines take over, and then you won't be anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you learn a range of skills, you you might not be a translator, but you you might learn the skills necessary to become the person that sells that machine translation to people, or teaches other people how to do that, or whatever. Yeah. So if you accumulate the right set of skills, you will always find a way to put them together into something useful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's the, the theory anyway. <laughs> you said something that sort of alluded to the fact that you might have been more closed-minded when you were in your when you were younger mm. and you've become more open-minded. Mm. Which is generally, I think, unusual because oftentimes as people age in life, they become more closed-minded. Mm. Which I thought was just quite interesting. Yeah. It's down to my wife. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've, we've been together since we were 18 and we got married when we were 20. So we've been together a long time now. And um, she's just a very naturally open-minded, outgoing uh, person. Very different personality to mine, which always made it, not always, but for the first few years of our relationship made it very difficult for us. We had to do a lot of adjusting 
mm. and smoothing of corners off each other and learning how to communicate and stuff like that. Mm. But but it's also made me a much more open-minded person. And I've, you know, I've studied different psychology and hypnotherapy and all kinds of things to kind of learn about how the world works in a slightly different way. Yeah. And open or open my mind to different possibilities. Um, I, and I think equally as as you learn more, you I mean, you do realize that you know less than you thought, mm. but you also understand what you do know. And you become much more comfortable about expressing it. And you shed the fears that you might have had of being judged for expressing it by other people. Mm-hmm. To the point where you're sitting and talking about it on camera. <laughs> you're a really complex guy. You know, and this is what I love about these types of um, conversations mm. is that when you see you speaking about something on any morning channel or any news channel, you get about five seconds to express yourself mm. and then you're shut down or, mm. or you, know, you, just, you just don't get an opportunity to fully express yourself. Mm. Whereas this is a real uh, opportunity to explore your psyche in a strange way, which I, I really enjoy. <laughs> well, it's like I said, TV is the clickbait medium now. Yeah. That's what it is. So when you go on there, you're not going on, on there to express your ideas. You're yeah. going on there in those debates formats certainly to win. That's what you're going on to do. You're mm. going to look good and make other people look bad, <laughs> basically. Yeah. For, or rather, I mean, that, that sounds very crass. You're going on there to, to very succinctly express your point of view to make it look valid and to make the other point of view invalid. Yeah. And look bad. That's what you're going to do. Yeah. Um, hmm. uh, which is why long form conversations are a whole different ball game. Yeah. Yeah. Last question is a big one. If you could change anything in the world, what would it be and why? Or perhaps to put it in your uh, mm. kind of speak, make Earth great again. <laughs> <laughs> My kind of speak. Well, that's quite a, quite a, a tarnishing association. Really, really, just to politicise it more yeah. than anything. Not no implication. Um, <laughs> Huh. It's not something I've ever really thought about because I suppose I don't believe it's possible to change whatever you want in the world. So it's never been a question that I've really... That is where I talk about the right and the right part of my politics uh, is about pragmatism and reality, right? Uh, since we're never going to be able to change something like that, mm-hmm. I've never really given it any thought. Um, I suppose in terms of my actions, I'm trying, the thing I'm trying to change is the way we have conversations. Uh, and I suppose if I could change anything, it's, it would be to create a world where we talk honestly with each other about difficult things uh, without fear of offending other people and without uh, becoming angry and polarized as a result. Yeah, yeah. That seems pretty in, in keeping with your mission, I would say. Yeah. 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 Good answer. Mm. Awesome. Great stuff. Constantine, I've loved chatting with you. It's been so much fun. Thanks for um, having me. No, oh, it's an absolute pleasure. It's been brilliant to hear your perspectives with more nuance. And uh, yeah, I, I can't wait to see how your channel uh, continues to progress. So yeah, for anyone that's watching or listening, then go check it out. I'll put links in the description. So Fantastic. Thanks yeah. very much, man. It's a pleasure. Thanks. Cheers. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks Elliot. You've been listening to Inspired Edinburgh. 
If you enjoyed this, please subscribe for more powerful conversations. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our show and we'll see you at the next episode.